I'm not sure how many of you have heard yet about A.J. Jacobs. And uh, if you've seen the sitcom that was released that last month on CBS, it's called Living Biblically. Or where it started was actually a book. Uh, A.J. Jacobs wrote a a book uh, back in uh, 2004, and it was uh, an ambitious project for him. He would tell you, I'm not a... I've never been particularly religious. Uh, he said, in fact, I'm, to, to give you a sense of how unreligious I am, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who I've almost never used the word Lord unless it's followed by the words of the, uh, of the rings. So he, he was not accustomed to speaking about God, to thinking about God. But he took on an ambitious project um, in a book that he would later go on to, to entitle The Year of Living Biblically, One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. So he set out to do it all. Just take the Bible and everything that he saw, he was going to uh, live out as as literally as he could. So he wore sandals like the Israelites did in the desert. Uh, He carried and walked around with a a robe and a, uh, a walking stick that would have made Moses proud. He burned myrrh. He drank goat's milk. He ate Ezekiel bread. He observed purity laws. He avoided mixed fibers in his clothing. He even um, had his hand at uh, making an animal sacrifice. Probably the, the thing that stands out most is all of the kind of crazy things that he did over the course of the year. He actually carried around a pocket full of white pebbles. He figured large, large rocks might get him into too much danger, but the Bible talks about stoning. And he carried around a, a, a pocket full of small pebbles. And um, for instance, on a Sunday, he went up to a, a FedEx uh, delivery person and he thought, well, this is clearly breaking the Sabbath. And uh, he took out one of his uh, little pebbles and he kind of dropped it, on his, uh, dropped it on his shoe and then he apologized for doing so. He was in Central Park on another occasion and um, he, he, well, he doesn't cut his beard. He, he looks like a biblical figure, okay? So people come up to him and start asking him, what, what is this? What's going on with you? And on one occasion, so he's sitting in Central Park and the person beside him says, you know, what, what's this you're doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm actually looking to stone someone today. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, I'm, you know, the Bible talks about stoning adulterers, so I was, you know, looking for a, an adulterer that I might stone. And he said, well, I've committed adultery. The person beside him on the, on the park bench, and he said, well, would you mind if I stoned you? And, he, and so he became quite, quite angry, and he said, well, you, you better not. That's not going to end well for you. At which point he took out one of his little pebbles and threw it at his chest. And, you know, there was this uh, uproar and... and, and uh, uh, anyway, he just he went through his entire year like this and then chronicled his journey and talked about what had happened. His experiment for me highlights two problems that I think, although I, I, I'm sure none of you are going to try and repeat this experiment, there are two problems that his book and his journey surfaced that I think that you will need to deal with. The first is that as he goes through this year, he doesn't know very much about the Bible, so he consults some people that he figures will know more than he does. And so there are ministers uh, of various backgrounds that he approaches for information on 
hey, what do I do here? What's this idolatry thing all about? And, and he's, he's going and asking advice. And frequently the response that he gets from them is, well, you don't need to take this so seriously. You don't, you know, this is, I know it's in the Bible, but don't, don't go so, so uh, don't, don't, don't take this uh, in, in such a, a serious way. That, that's a problem, I think. The second is the conclusion that he makes at the end of the year. Because in addition to trying himself to live the Bible as literally as he possibly can, he interacts with all kinds of uh, religious groups and denominations and tries to understand what he, and, and asks them questions about their practices. And this is a conclusion he makes at the end of the year. This year showed me beyond a doubt that everyone practices what he calls cafeteria religion. And then he says, but the important lesson was this. There's nothing wrong with choosing cafeteria, with choosing. Cafeterias aren't bad per se. The key is in choosing the right dishes. So the conclusion that he makes about you and about me and about all the people who claim to follow the Bible, what we're really doing, we open the Bible and we take and choose the parts that we like and we ignore the parts that we don't like, the way that you would do in a cafeteria in looking for various items on the menu. And I fear that many people have, in fact, made that conclusion about the Bible, and you may have unknowingly made that same conclusion yourself. Now, at Grace Year, I preach from the Old Testament probably as much as I preach from the New Testament. We're in a Bible reading campaign where right now we're encouraging people to get in the habit daily reading the Bible daily listening to God through the scriptures and not just from the New Testament, but also from the Old Testament. But if you don't know how the Bible for itself says how it is fit together, I think that you are liable to make one of two conclusions. Either there are certain parts of the Bible that you just don't need to take so seriously, or you get to pick and choose the parts that you like and ignore the ones that you don't and adopt what A.J. Jacobs would call cafeteria religion. I don't want that to be true of you. I don't want it to be true of me. And so what I'd like to do this morning is we're going to go to a passage where I believe the Bible tells us how to put the Bible together, how to not do cafeteria religion and pick and choose the parts that we like, but to understand how God ex expects us to put together the various parts of the Bible in a way that we can uh, not only read, understand, and apply. And what I want you to see, there's, there's kind of three big chunks that come out in this packet passage, and I want you to have your ears tuned to them and uh, to have kind of as a grid as we're going through. There is, first of all, a permanent covenant of promise. And as our representative, we're going to hang our hat on a man named Abraham, permanent covenant of promise with Abraham, a temporary covenant of law whose representative is Moses. So we've got a permanent, permanent covenant of promise with Abraham as our representative, a temporary covenant of law with Moses as our representative, and we're going to see how Jesus fulfills them both, how Jesus is the hope and the, uh, the one that that both that permanent covenant of promise and that temporary covenant of law that 
he is the one that they are both pointing to. So we've got Abraham, Moses, Jesus. We've got a temporary, temporary, a permanent promise, a temporary law, and a glorious fulfillment. Okay? So let's start with Abraham and the promise. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're continuing our, our, our reading through this great book. And I'm going to start by reading verses 15 to 18. Galatians 3, verses 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you're confused already, that's okay. This is a complicated passage, passage, and we're going to try and make it simple for you. First of all, it teaches that the promise is God's assurance of a Savior. That there is a promise that runs from the beginning to the end of Scripture that speaks of God's pledge to provide a rescue from sin. The promise is God's assurance of a Savior. Now, if you look at the passage, just keep your eyes on it. You'll see the word promise all the way through it. In verse 16, it refers to promises made to Abraham and his offspring. Keep that word offspring in your mind. In verse 17, it says that the law does not make the promise void. So although there was something else, it didn't mean that it canceled out this thing called the promise. Then in verse 18, it says the inheritance is something that God gave to Abraham by a promise. So there's, there's this promise that hasn't been canceled out, was given to Abraham. Somehow it be, it, it's given to us. We're going to try and understand, what is this promise? What is he talking about here? Now, the first hint of a promise, and we've got to back up in order to kind of understand this text, comes right near the beginning of the Bible. Comes in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse, te- verse 15. You picture yourself, you're in the garden, Adam and Eve have just turned their backs on God. They've taken the fruit. They've committed the first sin. They have brought on themselves the dire consequences of sin. And those consequences are spelled out. They're spelled out for Adam. They're spelled out for Eve. And they're spelled out for the serpent that tempted them. In Genesis 3.15, God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity, hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, the offspring of the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a very cryptic saying. When you first read it, you think, well, I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm not, like, God is saying something that seems to be important, but I'm not sure all that's happening, all all that's being described. What is clear, if you look at the verse, is that the temptations with the serpent aren't going to be done in the garden. 
that there's going to be a continuation of the hostility between them. There will be generations of tempters. The serpent's offspring will wage war. They will be in hostility, in enmity with the offspring of the woman, with humanities, the various generations that would follow. But God promises that despite there will be that ongoing war, there is hope that God will bring a final victory. The serpent, it says, will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring. If any of you have bruised your heel, you know that's painful. It affects your ability to walk properly. It, it is a, a painful thing. And, and so this offspring, we've seen the word offspring already in Galatians, so we're kind of te- keying into that. This offspring, whoever the offspring is, will be injured by the serpent. But the serpent... Although the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring, he, the offspring of the woman, will bruise the serpent's head. Getting hurt in your heel, if you're a, a human, is not, is not very pleasant. It's very painful. But if you're a serpent and you get bruised in the head, that's a kill shot. When you go to the, the, a, a serpent's head, it, that is going to bring uh, destruction. It's a promise that although there will be an extended war between humanity and the serpent, which is later identified as Satan, the end of that war will see the offspring of the woman suffering injuries but eventually triumphing over the serpent. The hope is that although the serpent had brought all of this pain and and temptation in the garden, that a serpent crusher will be born, that there will be a rescuer, a victor that will come in the battle. And that promise, which starts in Genesis 3.15, gets filled out and expanded all the way from the beginning to the end of Scripture. More detail is given about who the offspring of the woman is, where this offspring of the woman will come from, where this serpent, serpent crusher will, will, will be born and how, and how people can respond to them. How people can respond to the serpent crusher and get in on the promise. Be a part of this thing that God God is saying is going to happen. Now a key development in that promise comes with a man named Abraham. That's why he gets mentioned in this passage we're looking at in Galatians chapter 3. But one of the key developments happens in after Genesis 3 that we just looked at in another passage in Genesis 15. Abraham has been introduced in Genesis 12. He's 75 years old. And God promises that there will be offspring born to him. And that's unusual because he's, he, he, he and his wife, try as they will, have not been able to have any children. In chapter 15, after waiting for more than a decade from the promise that God made to him in Genesis 12, after waiting more than a decade God renews his promise to him. Abraham still has no offspring, even though he's been promised it now 10 years earlier. Even still, when God assures him that this offspring will be born, that the promise is alive, that God will do something through him that will bring blessing to all the nations, it says in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham chose to respond with trust when 
all of the, everything humanly speaking would lead you to respond in unbelief. What is this? How could I, how could I believe that, that at my age, at my wife's age, we could possibly have a child? How could God's promise to bring blessing to the nations, how could that come through me and, and through my wife? That, it didn't seem possible, but he responded in faith, trust, and in, in God and his promises. And it says, the Lord counted that to him as righteousness. The implication is, Abraham wasn't righteous on the basis of his moral achievement. Abraham was like you and like me, well-intentioned at times, trying his best at times, but ultimately, like Adam and Eve and everyone that's followed, falling short of the mark. He was not righteous, but on the basis of his faith, God counted him as righteous, treated him as righteous. He gave him a righteousness that he did not possess of his own. And with that faith, God eventually, as God always does, responded. He brought what he had promised despite all of the circumstances that seemed against it. God brought an offspring. God brought a child to Abraham. The hope of a serpent crusher was alive. Now others followed in Abraham's faith. They trusted God and God counted them as righteous. Israel's King David was one of those people of faith. It says in Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David realized that there isn't anyone in history who was righteous, perfectly righteous in and of themselves, that everyone had followed in Adam's footsteps. But he trusted in a God who would not count iniquity, who would not count that person's sin against them, and that God would do that on the basis of faith. People who believed in him, believed in his promise, trusted their lives to him, would experience his mercy in covering their sin. Now, all of that is essential background for the passage that we get to today. Because what God is saying in verses 15 to 18 is that this thing called the law, which we're going to look at, was never a condition of the promise. That it was never the basis of Abraham's righteous, righteousness, David's righteousness, or anyone else in Scripture. God gave a covenant of law to Moses filled with rules prescribing minute details on how to live. Those are the rules that A.J. Jacobs was trying to live out for that year. But the law of Moses never annulled the promise that was made to Abraham. The law of Moses never superseded it. It it was never tacked on as an addendum to the promise, as if that believing in the promise, that was kind of okay for Abraham, but now we need to do this instead, instead of or in addition to in order to be counted righteous. No, the law of Moses didn't do that. They were two separate things. In verse 15, I want you to see how Paul refers to man-made contracts. Here he's referring probably to Greek, uh, Greek wills. The, the word covenant here, the, the original word could either mean covenant or will. That's how we uh, uh, often refer to uh, the, the, the testament here. 
here he's saying once you put one of these things into effect, once you put an, a human agreement into effect, you don't just get to play around with it and, and add and subtract from it. There's no changing it. If, if you've been made the executor of a will, you don't get to read through the will and say, ah, I don't really like point three here. I think, I'll, I think I'll update it. I think I'll change a few points to kind of make it a little bit more beneficial to me. Uh, you, you, you don't get to change a will once it has been uh, enacted. In verse 17, he says, the law, referring to the law, all the rules that God had given to Moses, and they came 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham, but they never canceled it out. They never became something that was added on or, or, or somehow modified the promise that was given to him. So the law of Moses isn't an addendum to the promise of Abraham. You don't have to have the faith of Abraham and keep all of the laws in order to be counted as righteous. It's always been faith, not law-keeping, that made someone an inheritor of the promise. So what we're trying to do here, just to back up, we're trying to understand how does the Bible put itself together? How does the Bible tell us to understand the Bible? Because if we don't get it, we'll do what A.J. Jacobs did, or we'll say, oh, we'll just kind of pick and choose the parts we like, or we'll just read it but not take it all that seriously. We don't want to do any of those things. We started by looking at the promise, and we said that the promise is God's assurance of a Savior. It spoke of the coming of a serpent crusher, and that by faith, we can receive his benefits. We can receive righteousness and salvation. Now, as you read through the Bible, you will see references, and and as I said, increasingly detailed references to this promise, the promise that would come. But there's also a law that was given to Moses. Many times people refer to it as the Ten Commandments, and that's okay, but the Ten Commandments is really kind of an executive summary. That's just the top line. And those Ten Commandments are the executive summary for a law that includes some 613 commandments. And although we would love to put the Ten Commandments before us and say, hey, that's my faith, that's, that's the law that I'm obeying, that isn't exactly true because that law comes with those other uh, 603 commandments that are um, part and parcel of that whole thing called the Law of Moses. So what we're trying to understand now in this next section is, what was that law for? What was it all about? How are we supposed to read it? What are we supposed to do with it? And that's what verses 19 to 25 describe. So follow along as I read, uh, again, Galatians 3, verses 19 to 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, here's that word again, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Again, like the opening passage, not simple reading. If you're reading this in your own devotional time and you just zip on through this, probably not much is going in. You get to a passage of scripture like this, you need to slow down, take it easy, take it one sentence at a time and say, what is he really talking about here? So let's try and unpack it together. Paul's already said that the law wasn't a condition of the promise. The law of Moses wasn't an addendum to the promise of Abraham. It didn't cancel it out. What was it for? First of all, it was never given to save people. It was given to show how pervasive sin was, how sin had affected every area of our lives. In verse 19, if you take a look at the verse, it says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Other verses help spell out what that means. Romans 3.20, for instance, puts it this way. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law helps us to understand what sin is. It helped to spell out not just the details of sin. It helped to spell out what this sin is in our our hearts. Romans 7.7, Paul said, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have been able to put these things together. I wouldn't know what a, what, a, what a lawbreaker I am. I wouldn't know how disobedient I was if God hadn't put before me laws that I immediately felt a, a desire to reject and, and rebel against. The law was designed to convince people of their sin, to expose people's sin. And one of its aims was to open people's eyes to this ongoing battle with the serpent. And realizing how impossible this battle with the serpent was in their, on their own to create this longing for a serpent crusher. Longing for someone who would rescue them from sin, rescue them from this heart of disobedience and rebellion. The law actually provokes us to sin. It tempts us and dares us to defy it. I read of a researcher at a Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona, and this was absolutely fascinating to me. The researcher wanted to do an experiment whereby he wanted to learn something about human behavior. And you and I could probably have saved him millions of dollars in, in f- funding for, for this research. We could have spelled it out for him in advance. But what he did, he took some uh, petrified uh, petrified wood, and he scattered it over the walking trails that go throughout this national park in in Arizona. And there's all kinds of trails that people can take. And what he did is he would put warning signs at the start of various trails. In fact, half of the trails, he put a warning sign, and the warning sign read, read this, your heritage is being vandalized Every day by the theft losses of petrified wood, don't steal. Okay? Half of the the trails have this strong warning that was going to bring out people's moral outrage. Yes, we can't do that. That is wrong. 
The other half, the other trails had no sign. But all of the trails had these, this petrified wood that he had placed along the trails. Can you guess what the results of his little experiment were? Can you believe that the trails with the signs had three times as much wood stolen from them than the trails with no signs? We are lawbreakers. We, the Bible says we're sinners. Exper- you know, I don't know how much he spent conducting this, this research and, and, and carrying out this experiment. Ex- research proves that we're sinners. You give a person a law and there's something inside, it that, inside us that says, I will break that. I will defy that. I will rebel against that. And that's exactly what the law of Moses did. By giving laws of every conceivable area of life, it was was to send the message, oh yeah, you think you've got this area of your life figured out? Well, how about all of those other 612 laws? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done for. Every time I see one of them, I want to fight against it. And it was designed to convince people how pervasive sin was. The law also showed how addictive sin is. Verse 22 says that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Or verse 23 says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. The law just showed how powerful sin is and what a hold it had on people's hearts. And again, it was designed to make people long for release, long for freedom from this war with the serpent. It was designed to create an appetite in people's hearts that we desperately need someone who will crush the head of the serpent, who will bring relief from this battle that we have. Paul also explains that the law was a temporary measure to prepare us for Jesus. He does that through the image of a Greek guardian. In verse 24, Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, Guardian might be a helpful word for you. Uh, Guardians of the galaxy comes to mind. Like a, there, there's, we, we, we're not thinking in terms of a first century guardian. Uh, the King James tries schoolmaster, which, which may be helpful for some people, but it's not, it gives, for me, the image of the principal of a school. And that's not what was going on here. Probably, I think that the best translation here might be nanny. That the law was a a nanny. The, this, when it speaks of guardian, that, that's the kind of image that, that, that you, you want to be thinking of. The, the guardian here would accompany the children when they were, when they were younger. They would oversee their homework. Uh, the guardian would be a, a disciplinarian. They would, they would have to uh, discipline the children when they were misbehaving. They were responsible for the different functions of the, of the, of the children. As with a nanny, at a certain age, the children would mature they would grow, and at a certain age, they wouldn't need the supervision of the nanny or the guardian anymore. Verse 20, where 25 explains it, that's exactly the case with the law of Moses. It says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law is no longer our nanny. It's no longer charged with, with uh, authority over, over us. We no longer have the law of Moses uh, over us as our authority. 
because it was all preparing us for the serpent crusher. It was pointing forward to a Savior who would come. Its goal was to point to Jesus. Now that he's come, we're no longer under it. Now, the imagery of of a nanny, I think, is helpful for a Christian to now say, well, what do I do with the law of Moses? How do I read the law of Moses? Because to a child, the nanny represents the parent's authority. The nanny is to be obeyed and respected. But there comes a time when the child outgrows the need for the nanny's supervision. But at that point, the child still loves the nanny. The child can still learn from the nanny. The child can still appreciate and, and, and think fondly of the nanny. But the, the child is no longer under the authority of the nanny. The relationship has changed. The fondness, the love, and the respect doesn't change, but the relationship does change. When a Christian reads the law of Moses, it's still helpful. We still learn from it. The the law still shows us how pervasive sin is, how addictive sin is, how powerful sin's control can have over our lives. It still points us to Jesus Christ, but we're no longer under the authority of that law of Moses. That's what I'd love A.J. Jacobs to understand. And that's what's wrong with the year of living biblically because actually in trying to live biblically, he is ignoring and actually rejecting what, how the Bible tells us it is to be read. The law of Moses is no longer in effect. There's no temple. There's no priesthood. There's no need for more sacrifices. We're not living in a theocracy. But that doesn't mean that we practice cafeteria religion and we just pick and choose the parts that we like. We submit to God and our trust is in Him. But the fact is that God has replaced some of the items on the menu. And it's a sin to either demand that He put them back or act as if He hasn't changed them. So we've seen that the Bible contains, first of all, permanent covenant of promise. That the representative there was Abraham. temporary covenant of law. The representative there was Moses. But finally, let's consider how Jesus is the fulfillment of both the law and the promise. How they were were pointing to him, they are fulfilled in him, and uh, we we can put our Bibles together as we see him as the one to whom they're pointing. Follow along as I read the last portion of this chapter, verses 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever come to this point yet. Um, I I remember the first time Brooke, really, our daughter Brooke stumbled on a verse like this. We were probably, she was probably grade seven or eight. We were reading the Bible after dinner. And she said, why would God call us all sons of God? Like, I'm not God's son, right? Like, I'm, if anything, I'd be his daughter. Why, why Why would it use language like that? 
And in this passage, it's particularly strange because in verse 28, it specifically refers to male and female. So presumably there were women in the congregation that that, um, Paul is addressing. So why why does he refer to them as sons of God? And as with many things in Scripture, there, there is a good reason. In the first century culture, the son was the heir. The daughter would marry into another family and enjoy her, the, the, uh, uh, the inheritance that came along with that, but the son that was born into the home was the one who received the inheritance. And that's the point of the passage here. The point of verse 26 is that whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're slave, free, boy, girl, doesn't matter, Through faith in Jesus Christ, we all become inheritors of the promise. That point gets repeated in verse 29 with different words when it says, if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ through faith in him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That promise is your inheritance. You receive it through him. Through faith in Jesus, you become Abraham's offspring. You inherit his promise. The victory of the serpent crusher is a victory that you inherit by faith in him. The promise that's developed throughout the Old Testament becomes your promise, your inheritance. And that's not just in an abstract way. Through faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. That's what it means in verse 27 when it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. The word put on here is the language of clothing. It's a picture Uh, And it's connected with baptism because what they would do in the first century frequently is someone would come for their baptism and one of the things that they would give them as kind of a gift and as a a reminder of this was a new set of uh, of, uh, linen garments. So you would come out of, you'd you'd come in with your old, dusty, sandy, um, uh, old clothes, you would be baptized and then you would receive from the church a brand new, uh, clean set of clothes. And it was a picture of the righteousness that we receive from Christ. We are covered with him. We are clothed with him. It's a a fulfillment of that promise that was made to, to Abraham. And so my question for you this morning is, are you ready to start living biblically? If so, I have good news for you. You do not have to stone Sabbath breakers. You don't have to eat Ezekiel bread. You, you, might, you can eat Ezekiel bread. You don't have to. It is, you are no longer under those, those laws. But that doesn't mean that you don't take the Bible seriously, and it doesn't give you justification to practice cafeteria religion. I'll have a little bit of that about... I'll, I'll take that comfort and peace part of the Bible. I don't think I'll want anything to do with that uh, uh, giving and sacrifice and serving part of the Bible. You don't get to do that. That is not the faith that the Bible prescribes for itself. The faith that God counts as righteousness is a faith that takes God's word seriously in the way that God prescribes it for himself. The faith of Abraham was a faith that trusted in God despite all of his circumstances. The Bible's vision of of living biblically starts with faith in the serpent crusher, faith in Jesus Christ as our solution to this desperate, pervasive, addictive problem that we all have with sin. By trusting in him, 
we're counted as righteous. We receive his righteousness, and that becomes our peace and our hope, our joy and our delight. And then it is now the words of Jesus. It is the teachings of the new covenant. It is his law that now becomes our guide. It becomes our life. Not trying to earn anything, not trying to add to something, but in order to live out our devotion to this one who calls us and leads us into salvation. Are you doing what A.J. Jacobs accuses you of doing? Are you practicing cafeteria religion and putting a little Jesus label on it. Because that is not the faith of the New Testament. That's not the faith of the, of the Bible, whether in Abraham, whether under Moses, or under Jesus Christ. God invites you into something deeper than that. And I would love to show the world, I'd love to show A.J. Jacobs, people who don't practice cafeteria religion, but would live truly biblically in the way that God lays out for us. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to make sense of your word. Help us to see the Bible as you have put it together. Thank you, Father, for the amazing promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you count our simple faith as righteousness. That somehow, by our trust in you, you would... Give us as an inheritance all of your gracious promises. I pray for anyone here this morning who is still outside of those promises. Give them courage, Father, to trust you. Give them help to believe. I pray for all of us who have trusted in Jesus that we would take your word seriously. Show us areas in our lives where we're picking and choosing areas of, dis- areas of obedience. And help us, Father, to, to treat you, to treat your Son with the devotion that you deserve. For we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.